Forsyth. Hello. You're the first comedian we've had on Marsha Meets under the new government. Yes, I think it's very exciting. Do you? Yeah, I've been following Facebook and Twitter religiously trying to find out what all my friends think and everybody's really depressed. I'm not. I think it's quite exciting. It's democracy in action and I think it's quite good to see. After years of people not actually giving a toss about politics, I think it's nice that it's one of the big things that everybody's talking about. It is. And you're quite political, aren't you? I mean, not political, but as in you've got quite a lot of interest in it. I suppose. It I'm, I'm, I'm what's described as a political comedian. But I think that just reflects the fact that 98% of comedians now aren't political at all. I think that everything's really changed. And you only have to say a couple of things on stage and suddenly you're a political comedian. But I do consider myself political without being particularly knowledgeable. <laughs> I'm one of those people that's able to absorb other people's opinions and mould it into one of my own, as opposed to actually do the hard work and research myself. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book off the mic, the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Do you ever feel any kind of responsibility? You do have a platform. You are someone who will say stuff that could potentially influence the way that people think or make them even think about things. It's, it's an interesting question. I did a gig last night in Bristol and there was a young lad there who genuinely told me that I was an inspiration and that I was the person that he really looked up to. And I kind of just wanted to say, get a grip. Uh, you, you don't hero worship people in that way, but I don't feel comfortable with that degree of responsibility, if you like, because no matter what you're saying on stage, you're still a comedian. Your job is to make people laugh. And that's the number one thing, and that's the most important thing, and it always will be the most important thing. Get on stage, people have paid good money to laugh. That's what they've paid their money for. It's how you get those laughs that's really up to you. And if I choose to go via a political route, that's probably because I've run out of anecdotes. I've done a lot of storytelling in the last three or four years of various drunken shenanigans or stories charged with emotional pathos and all of this business, and I'd like to think I do it very well. But I've run out of stories. I've run out of interesting things that happened to me. I now sit at home on Facebook poking my friends all day and then going out to do a gig and then coming back. Nothing that interesting really happens to me anymore. And that's when you start looking outside your own sphere of experience and uh, try and talk about other stuff, really. This is a great year, I think, to be talking about other stuff because suddenly politics is fashionable again. You know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm not a Tory fan. I've never been a Tory fan and I wouldn't vote Tory if my life depended on it. However... I think that they've done just about enough to deserve to get in. They've got more votes than anybody else. You know, no one else is in a better position than David Cameron to get in. And I think there's an inevitability, perhaps, about Cameron getting in. And I think people have got to deal with it. I mean, that's democracy in action. I know it's very upsetting to left-wing people to realise that their votes only count for so much. But that is democracy. More people wanted a Tory government than wanted a Labour government or a Lib Dem government. And I think it'll be very interesting. I personally don't think David Cameron will be as good as the Tories hope he will be or as bad as his opponents expect him to be. I think he'll be somewhere in the middle because he's a new Tory, by which I mean he's not a twat. <laughs> I, think he's, I, I don't fear him in the way that I would have feared a Michael Howard government or a William Hague government. I don't fear David Cameron. I think... He got the votes, he's done the job, let's see what he does. You said when you were doing comedy that you used to kind of tell a lot of stories, but you have always sort of been known as a comedian that does smart stuff, like people kind of consider you... Well, not always. 
Really? Uh, no, when I started, it was all shock one-liners and jokes just to try and make people laugh out of shock. That was 1995, though, and that was a long time ago. What kind of shock one-liners? I can't really say. They're so horrible. Really? I couldn't really say. Or do you just not sort of thing where you're just constantly telling jokes about dead celebrities or anal sex or whatever. That sort of thing, just to try and get the audience to react in any kind of way. But when you start, you want to do something where you get noticed. There's so many people that start out at the same time and you just want to get noticed. And I used to be really just one-liners for quite a long time and I actually remember the first story I ever told it was about being accosted by a racist who I really fancied in a taxi rank in Manchester and I remember thinking oh this is great I can do five or six jokes about the same thing and string them together and that's kind of how it all started and then in 2005 I came out to my dad and he reacted in a very positive way which was probably the biggest shock of my life it was the most unexpected thing I, I could ever remember and I thought oh, this is great, I can talk about this, this is really interesting. And I just sort of developed a style where I started talking about stuff rather than just telling jokes. So it happened about five years ago. But I was making a perfectly good living before then, just standing on stage and doing nothing but a series of fairly crude one-liners. So it wasn't that I wasn't making a living doing the other way. But did you notice a big difference in terms of the audience and how they reacted to you or the kind of audiences that warmed to...? Yeah, but not necessarily in a positive way. So there are some clubs I used to do brilliantly at and now I can't even buy a laugh. Really? Because, because what's happened is that comedies have become more and more and more popular and as a result more and more and more mainstream and as a result a lot of the audiences that go and watch comedy who weren't going to watch comedy seven or eight years ago just want it simple they don't want somebody bearing their soul on a friday or saturday night they're out to have a good time on a friday and saturday night and the last thing they want is somebody on stage going listen to my story what they want is joke 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 and so Everybody wants a different thing out of comedy. I like to think I get the balance right. I've just spent a weekend playing to drunks in Liverpool and it's been great every night. So I, I like to think I'm one of the comedians that can do it both ways. I can give you a, a one-hour show with pathos and political points or I could play to drunks on a Friday, Saturday night. I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that I can do both. And do you do you walk into a room and think, OK, this is this, is this kind of a room, so I'm going to hit them with that kind of thing? Or? Yeah. I mean, if I'm, say, last on a bill, I'll always try and get to the gig as, as soon as possible so that I can see how other comedians do, how the audience reacts and whether they react to the clever stuff or whether they miss the point of the clever stuff or whatever. And also, you sometimes get jokes from members of the audience. When you're on stage... It makes you look like a genius if you can refer back to something that's already happened in the show. So it's nice to get a feel for the audience. Going on cold can be very difficult. And I've certainly gone on cold and misjudged a room, done it a little bit too laid back or too storytelling and not enough jokes or that kind of thing and uh, lost the interest of a room. So it's important to know what sort of crowd you're playing to. Have you got like a worst ever gig in your head that you're like, that, that was it? Yeah, very much so. It was for many years a gig on a Saturday night at the Banana Cabaret in Ballum, which bizarrely enough I've done brilliantly at every time since. But somehow or other I just didn't connect at all. Um, and after about six or seven minutes, um, they all started chanting in unison for me to get off. And at this stage I'm a professional comic, I'm not a new comic. I'm a professional comic earning a decent wage, being paid quite handsomely, in fact, for the gig. And you just feel awful. And I think you have to get off at that stage because carrying on is just going to ruin it for the person who's coming on after you. If you then destroy the gig, you've destroyed it for somebody else after you. And so your responsibility is to give the audience something they actually want rather than something that they don't want. And so I just walked off. But a couple of 
Christmases ago, I did a gig where I was actually the last act on, and they just hated me from the word go. And then somebody tried to storm the stage, and the bouncers had to get him off, and had to get me off, and I had to hide in a kitchen for 45 minutes while a mass brawl took place inside the club. Oh, my God. No other art form can provoke such levels of anger than stand-up comedy. You'd never see it at the ballet or the opera or whatever. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see people descending into a brawl. But there's something about the British psyche that if they see someone on stage who's not making them laugh and they're meant to be making them laugh, they actually get angry as opposed to, oh, well. But then the flip side of that is when it goes well, the adoration, or the young kids coming up to you and saying you're an inspiration to me. and Yeah, the adoration's great. I think I used to enjoy it a lot more before, perhaps when I used to stay at gigs and have a couple of drinks. But now I'm getting older. I just want to go home once the, gig, once, once the gig's done. Once I've done the gig, I feel emotionally drained. It's great when you have a great gig, but what I really want is just one beer to calm the nerves and then just go home. And so I don't really hang around necessarily for all the plaudits. I'm often long gone by the time those plaudits come along. I tend to mention that I'm on Facebook during the set so that if people genuinely want to keep in touch, they can do the effort themselves and keep in touch. And do you like it when people do? Because I think people are always kind of scared to... You know, it's one thing to drunkenly wander up to someone and go, that was really great, but I think people tend to be a bit scared to say to people that's good because they think, oh, he wouldn't want me to hassle him. It's an interesting one. I have 1,200 friends on Facebook and I haven't done a count of how many of them I actually know, but I should think that there's a good 400 that I have no idea who they are. But as long as they're not bombarding me with inappropriate pokes and invitations to applications that I don't really understand, then I don't really mind. But the other thing that I do is I, if somebody adds me, I add them and then I look down their interests and groups. And if they happen to be a member of a group like immigrants who can't speak English should go back home, then I discreetly drop them. It's, it's as simple as that. I'd love to think that um, my fan base is entirely a more sophisticated kind of person, but it's not necessarily the case. And what's interesting, I did a couple of spots for the Comedy Store programme on the Paramount Channel couple of years ago I've never seen them as I hate watching myself on telly but I never really thought anything of it but I happened to mention Facebook on the set that was shown on telly and so every three or four months I get about 25 strangers adding me en masse and when I look down the list because it's the Paramount channel and it's watched by slightly drunk people at two in the morning they are nothing like what my other fan the non-televisual fan base are like the non-televisual fan base tend to be late 20s, maybe early 30s, maybe late 30-something Guardian-reading liberals, whereas uh, the people that add me after I've been on telly tend to be members of groups like I just want to smash the back door of a teenage girl in or something like that. Just the absolute opposite of how I'd live my life, really. And it's weird, and I tend to drop them discreetly if I realise they're not adding anything to the quality of my life at all. It's nice to be added, but you can't have your page clogged up with people that you never, ever communicate with at all. It's just impractical. That's good. I'm impressed at your quality control. Some people would just go for quantity. So I have to ask, best gig, do you have a best gig? That's an excellent question. I'm not sure these days whether any comedians have a best gig because every comedian worth his salt now has had at least 25 to 50 gigs that have gone blindingly well from start to finish. I think the one perhaps I look most fondly on was my first ever five-minute spot at the Comedy Store just because I was going through a real rut of having a bad gig after a bad gig after a bad gig 
and I was expecting it to be maybe the last gig I ever did. I thought if this goes badly, I'll probably just hit it on the head. And it just went amazingly well. And the comedy, it was the first time I'd ever been to the comedy store. And I'd just never been to a comedy club where every single joke that every comedian told went down brilliantly. Um, it's a different class of comedy club. Uh, and it just went amazingly well. That was 1998, December. So that's quite a long time ago. But I suppose that's the one that I look on most fondly. That was the one that made the big difference to my career. So what kind of gigs were you doing before then? Just, I mean, I was a full-time doctor, you've got to remember. So. Hang on, so you were a full-time doctor. When when you very first started doing comedy, how did it come about in the first place? The sort of chronology is uh, summer of 1994, I failed my medical finals, had six months off just to revise one subject, and so I had a lot of time on my hands. I went to a lot of comedy clubs, including new at nights and whatnot, because I loved comedy and I loved watching comedy. And then if you go to enough clubs, you get that nagging feeling in your head. Could I do this? And... I did my first gig in the summer of 95 while I was a full-time doctor in South London and it didn't go well, but it didn't go ridiculously badly at all. Where was that? It was in a quite a rough pub in the outskirts of Acton, but it didn't go disastrously. And so I thought, oh, I'll do it again. And I, I got a gig at the last minute at the King's Head Theatre in Islington and a complete unknown called Ed Byrne was closing the show and a complete loser called Simon Pegg was comparing the show. Uh, I have no idea what happened to Simon Pegg I think he just went back into obscurity, really. But that was weird, being on a bill with two people who went on to become very well-known. But that gig went really well. And so after that, I was just doing about 15 gigs a year for about three years, where it would just kind of go, good, good, bad, bad, good, disastrous, good, good, like that. Very inconsistent, but it was just a hobby, something you'd talk about at dinner parties. Oh, do you know, I do a bit of stand-up comedy, that kind of thing. I never expected to be a professional. Did you ever mix the two worlds? Did you ever talk on stage about changing details, but about patience? No, or? never. Very much aware of the Hippocratic Oath, very much aware that that would be breaking confidentiality, and I just never did. I did tell jokes at work, and in that sense, I tended to be the kind of guy who'd crack quips at work. But I wouldn't really talk about medical stuff on stage. And did you ever have patients who came in who'd seen you? Only when I became a little bit more successful. I think it sort of started about four or five years ago. You get people coming in. And what you've got to remember is that it's a very ephemeral thing, stand-up comedy. And most people, when they see someone on stage, within about 15 minutes, they've completely forgotten what that person looked like. And, uh, I mean, if you think of the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people that must have watched me do stand-up comedy, I get recognised maybe twice a year. <laughs> so the people's memory tends to be very short. And I like it, because when you get recognised twice a year, when it happens, it feels really special. I would hate, in that sense, to be famous enough that people were pestering you all the time. That's not really what I've craved. And when patients come in and recognise you, it's really awkward because... The comedian's ego kicks in, and what you really want them to say is, and you were funny. You have that gap where you're waiting for them to give a verdict. And when they don't say anything, you kind of think, all oh, right, OK, you saw me and you didn't, you didn't think anything <laughs> of me. But it's a bit awkward, especially when I do as much personal stuff as I do on stage. And certainly um, after my 2006 Edinburgh show, I saw a member of the public review that said, I really enjoyed the show. Not sure I'd want him as my doctor, though. And you think, hmm, I can kind of see where that woman's coming from. So when did you knock it on the head, being a GP? When did you decide? A couple of years back. That's really recent. It is recent. I mean, I was only a locum GP. When I say only, what I mean by that is I was entirely in charge of my own diary. So I could do no work in a week or do four or five days in a week or whatever. It didn't make any real difference. But the main reason I knocked it on the head was 
simply that uh, with the new initiatives that the government brought in where doctors have to be monitored at every level, I thought, I'm really struggling to keep up with this. I've, I've got to make a choice one way or the other, which is why I made the choice that I did. If it wasn't for that, I'd have probably worked this morning and come in here for the interview this afternoon. And the other thing as you get older is you realise you can't work quite as hard as you used to. In my early 30s, I would often be doing three surgeries and then driving to Bristol to do a gig. And you realise you just don't have the stamina to do that anymore. You come from a family of doctors, don't you? Granddad and dad. I'm a mum's a nurse, so... Right. Yeah, it was always there. And were they... I mean, obviously, you know, you're old enough that you're responsible, but were they spooked by... Because they're first-generation Bengali, aren't they? That's right, yeah. And, you know, being from immigrants myself, I know that often first-generation immigrants, it's like, we want our children to have this amazing, prestigious job. And Yeah. And so were your parents OK with it? They didn't... Yeah, they yeah, very, totally. Yeah. No, very much so. They're classic Bengalis in that as long as you're successful at something... <laughs> As long as they've got something to boast about to other people. Um, if I get to travel abroad, for instance, I'll get, I mean, I've been very lucky in that sense. Um, You've been to loads of places, yeah, haven't you? Yeah, I've been really... I mean, that's one of the greatest things about being a stand-up is that you do get sent to some amazing places. The last two or three years, I have been all over the world to do stand-up comedy. Have you done troops gigs? I haven't. I think that they don't know how an openly gay act would necessarily go down, so to speak, in an arms forces gig. I'd love to give it a go. I mean, I really would. But it's a bit of a risk. And the last thing you want to do is fly out there. And these are incredibly well-paid gigs, as you can imagine, in Iraq and Afghanistan. The last thing I'd want to do is fly out there and find that I was nothing like what they were looking for in entertainment. I'd rather not take the chance, to be honest with you. It'd just be a bit humiliating. (laughs) So we talked about you being openly gay, we talked about you being Bengali descent, we've talked about you being a doctor. These are all... USPs, you know, there's... Well, none of them are USPs uh, on their own. Yeah, but all together. But put put together, of course, yeah. It's something that's referenced a lot when people write about you, that it's, you know, gay, Asian, doctor, comedian. I know, and this year I'm kind of getting back to that, because this year my show's going to be mostly about politics, and it's almost impossible for me to do a show about politics without referencing race and sexuality. But it's not like it's the only stuff I've ever talked about on stage. Last year I did a show about my love of competitive quizzing. I've been on TV quiz shows, and uh, I am as of today the 28th ranked quizzer in the United Kingdom. How does that get decided? It gets decided through monthly tournaments that take place all over the country. It's just a written exam. You go and sit down and you do a 240 question written exam and based on those results you get ranking points and you go up and down the ranking list. Where do you go? In my head you're in a classroom sat at a wooden desk. No, it's usually a social club, sometimes a church. You've done TV quizzes as well, you've done a few things. Yeah, it all started with University Challenge The Professionals uh, in which our team of comedians got thrashed in the first round. Who else was on your team? Um, a guy called Pete Graham who runs a comedy club called Downstairs at the King's Head in Crouch End. He organised it, and then it was him, me, Natalie Haynes, and Simon Evans, the co-writer of that Lee Mack comedy, whose name I cannot remember. Not going out? Not going out, yeah, 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 Simon Evans. And to be fair, between us, we knew an awful lot, but it wasn't nearly good enough. (laughs) We were up against the team that eventually won, and they just demolished us. What were they professionals The Ministry of Justice. There were two very veteran quizzers in that team. We didn't know that. And then I did Mastermind, which was disappointing, and I came fourth out of four, but I got 25 points, which would be enough to win quite a lot of the heats. So I was just very unlucky. Right. And then I did something called Are You an Egghead? which was a competition to become the seventh of the eggheads on the BBC Two quiz show Eggheads. 
and it was amazingly disastrous. I was up against a guy, and in the first five rounds, you win an egghead who can help you in the last round. And I won all five rounds and had a full quota of eggheads behind me. And in the last round, they failed to give me a correct answer. Because questions, no the questions were so impossible that they failed to give me a correct answer, and I crashed out. It's on Wikipedia. The greatest comeback in the history of Are You an Egghead is how it's described on Wikipedia. But that was the last time I've been on telly. And I... But didn't you do one when you were super young as well? Wow, aren't you, <laughs> aren't you well-researched? I did one on Sky One called Intellect when I was 20. That was our medical school. There were quite a few years when University Challenge wasn't on the screens and everyone was looking for an alternative. And it was really awful. I mean, it was really, really bad. In what sense? Imagine University Challenge, level of questions, but imagine that there's only about eight of them stretch over a half-hour programme. That... What happened in between? It was just a lot of discussion and a lot of... It was just awful. Words cannot describe how bad the show was. Can there's you... a website called ukgameshows.com that lists every game show that's ever been on telly. And they describe the show as, as difficult for the audience to endure as it was for the contestants, which I think pretty much sums it up. Totally misjudged. The, the first round was a written paper that you sat before the show started. And the first six or seven minutes was you discussing your answers to the written paper. So the audience couldn't even join in because they'd not been given the written paper. Who thought that would make great telly? Honestly, it was absolutely abysmal. We're going to come back to quizzing. OK. But you've got an Edinburgh show. You're also doing this show at the Udderbelly on the South Bank. Yes. You've done a show there already. Yeah, I've done a show at the Udderbelly last year. It was great. I really, really enjoyed it. It's a cracking venue. It's a wonderful location. When the sun is shining and sat there having a cold beer in front of a giant inflatable cow makes you delighted that fate brought you to London as your home city because it's great. It's almost a bit of an out there concept for London really. To I have think that's it. what makes it great because you'd think that I mean obviously there's the whole East London's been turned over to the Olympics but you would think that there wasn't enough room in the middle of London to have an out there concept that somehow they found the space to make it work and I last summer we had a lot of sunshine in the run up to my gig I spent a lot of time on the South Bank just giving out flyers and it was just fantastic. It was just a really nice atmosphere, a fantastic place to have a beer and uh, a really nice venue to go and watch a show. And there's all sorts of, a whole variety of shows on there. It's not just stand-up. So you've got your show there and is it the same show that you're going to be doing at Edinburgh? Um, certainly going to be a lot of new stuff from last year. The show is called Extreme Anti-White Vitriol, which is what the deputy leader of the British National Party, Simon Darby, accused me of peddling when we appeared on a radio discussion last year. And I thought, oh, I like that. I'll have that as the title of the show. It's a show about politics and extremism and why it is that uh, a lot of the country don't see us immigrants as being quite as cool as they used to, but with a lot of jokes. That interview that you mentioned is actually up on YouTube. Yeah, and, on a um, BNP page. Uh, what was interesting to me is I thought it was a fairly clear cut that Simon Darby made a tit of himself. And yet it's the BNP supporters put that video up on YouTube saying, look at Simon Darby, yeah. isn't he great? That YouTube channel is almost like the inspiration for the show in that why are there so many idiotic people out there that can't see the wood for the trees? Uh, and I suppose the nice thing about that BNP channel is, is it gives a chance for me to get used to the idea of people calling me a twat or a shit or this, that and the other. Because I think it's important to get used to the idea of people hating you because that's what happens. And I guess if your first experience of people hating you is people that you think are kind of idiots anyway. Yeah, exa yeah exactly. Whereas before, if somebody said something negative about me on the internet, it'd be so isolated that it would hurt me. 
now it doesn't hurt me. If someone says something negative about me, I'm, thought, oh, God, I'm kind of used to this now. On Simon Darby's blog, somebody's actually posted a photograph of me looking incredibly unphotogenic, and it says, this is the homosexual Paul Sinha. What a fine example of Asian superiority. <laughs> and it, that, that, that kind of thing, you just got to go, Whoa. wow. Um, That's nuts. That is completely nuts. So we'll talk again about the dates and about Edinburgh and stuff. Before then, because you're a big quizzer. Oh, no, you haven't. <laughs> can I do a little something? Well, I was trying to think, what can I ask you quiz questions about? Can I just say this is the best researched interview I've ever done in my life. You know more about my life than I do. <laughs> I'd forgotten about the Sky One show. <laughs> Some people get a little spooked by it. Um, so I decided to go with doctors. I have quiz questions based around medical things and I thought if I do medical terminology then I'm not going to know whether the answers are right or not and other people won't know so these are just doctor related <laughs> let's begin which doctor did the author Hugh Lofting write about in a series Dr. of children's Beautiful books buzzing. that's right International Nurses Day is held on May the 12th the anniversary of the birth of which famous nurse it was which doctor was arrested in 1910 on board the SS Montrose for the murder of his wife and is regarded as the first criminal to be arrested with the help of radio communication. Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen. <laughs> was. Which Italian motorcycle racer is nicknamed The Doctor? Valentina Rossi. It is. In which TV show did Linda Barron play Nurse Gladys Emanuel? Open all hours. It was. What is the first name of Sherlock Holmes's sidekick, Dr. Watson? Ah, oh, no, I always get this wrong. I think it's John. It is, John. In which continent did Henry Stanley meet David Livingstone, leading to the famous quote, Dr Livingstone, I presume? I can't name the country, but the town is Ujiji, no. and it's in Africa. It's <laughs> amazing. This is above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, which Oscar-winning actress played the title role in the 2000 film Nurse Betty? Renee Zellweger. It was. In the TV show Doctor Who, what do the letters stand for in TARDIS? Time and relative dimensions in space. Uh, and penultimately... Which famous singer used the pseudonym Dr. Winston O'Boogie on a number of recordings? John Lennon. It was. His middle name was Winston. Should we go for the tiebreaker? Yeah, why not? In which year did Bugs Bunny first ask Elmer Fudd, what's up, Doc? Oh, that's impossible. I'll try 1934. It was 1940, so oh. almost. You did amazingly well. Well done. Show Lame what? one I lady woman. I enjoyed that. <laughs> I cannot tell you how thrilling that was. <laughs> so the Udderbelly Show... It's June the 1st. Tuesday, June the 1st. And uh, then in Edinburgh, do you know where you're going to be? Yeah, the Stand 3, um, the Stand Comedy Club, uh, Edinburgh's only permanent comedy club, have four venues this year. I'm on at the Stand 3 at 10.40, which is late, so please don't be too drunk when you turn up for the gig, uh, because I'm not that kind of comedian. And um, your website's down at the moment. It is but... down, Facebook. My website's only down very, very temporarily. Okay. It'll, it'll be, it, I mean, the best place to go is my website. Well, in the meantime, if people want to come and find you and find out about all the dates, then Facebook, do they just do a search? Just for... add me on Facebook. Okay. I say yes to everybody. If you are a <laughs> member of Racist Groups, I will drop you eventually. But if you are a member of Racist Groups, you weren't going to come and watch my show anyway. <laughs> and at least you'll, you'll add them for long enough they can come and look at the dates Exactly. get dropped. Yep. And your, so your surname is spelled S-I-N-H-A. It is, yep. Paul Sinner, thanks so much for coming in. No problem at all. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.